Hello, everyone. This is Hannah Hollander, founder and executive director of Speak Your Truth Today. And I'm so excited because I get to host our Share Your Truth Live podcast today and interview another Hannah. Hannah is a business owner, advocate, local volunteer, mother, and spouse. She's a survivor of domestic violence for the last 21 years, over which time she has been using her experience to speak out and share her story in hopes of helping others. She's currently working towards becoming a psychotherapist and specializing in trauma during adolescence. Well, welcome, Hannah. Thank you so much for being here. We're excited to have you on our podcast today. I think I'll go ahead and start by asking you um, how you met your, uh, you first met your abusive ex-partner and uh, what attracted to you, you to them in the beginning. So I met my ex-abuser uh, when I was 17. I had just turned 17. And um I live in a small town that has a pretty small city, but it's the small, it's the largest in the state. Um, and I was working for my mom at the farmer's market, um, on a Saturday. And, uh, after the farmer's market ended, I saw some of my friends, friends hanging out in the park. And I went to go say hi and see if they knew where any of my other friends were. And this guy was there. We started talking and somehow hit it off and that was it. Um, so it was right after my 17th birthday. Um, kind of a whirlwind. I cannot tell you what attracted me to him. Um, I actually had been trying to think about that for a while. And I have, I have no idea. Um, I really, I, uh, <laughs> that statement right there because I'm the same way I'm like what was I thinking but (laughs) like he's like what was I thinking like I literally cannot pinpoint where my brain was the only thing I could think of is that his life and the background he came from was so drastically different than mine and I was in a major rebellious stage Mm. and that definitely pulled me in um, I also had low self-esteem and he was interested and I was 17. Yeah. It, I don't think there was much more than that. Um, he did start once we started dating with definitely playing into my savior complex and needing to save people. Um, he definitely found ways to make sure that I needed to save him a lot. Yeah. Um, and from two weeks in, he suddenly was homeless and I had to get, help him find a place to stay and convince my parents to let him stay with us for a week. Um, and, you know, to him disappearing for a couple of weeks and claiming he was in the hospital to all sorts of things that he needed money, he needed rides, whatever it was. And he just kept needing things from me. And I was so happy to give that it just kept roping me farther and further in. Yeah. So yeah. that might be it, but I haven't <laughs> really thought about it too hard. <laughs> yeah, too hard. Yeah. No, I, I get that. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. Um, I think small town, like I came from a small town too, you know, and I think like there's a, at least you know, in my experience of my small hometown, um, which I can imagine it might be similar. There was like, 
such a pressure to, um, you know, a family was a huge thing. Everyone's families were all, you know, very close knit and, and getting married young was like super normalized in my, in my hometown. I'm not sure. Did you guys ever, um, get married or, um, were you just dating? I ran away from my parents' house, um, March of my senior year. So from September, end of August, September, all the way through to March of my senior year of high school, we were together. And during that time, he was continuously manipulating me and gaslighting me, um, convincing me that my parents were emotionally abusive and that I was old enough and strong enough to make my own decisions. And that anytime there was any sort of boundary or restriction on me that I should and needed to fight it um, to the point where I ended up running away. So that was March of my senior year. Um, we ended up getting married on my 18th birthday. So that's the end of August. Um, so yeah. Like one year since later uh, when you yep. met. Yeah. Yep. Yep. On my 18th birthday, because there was cops involved because I had run away and they knew where I was. And so my parents kept trying to get me to come back. Mm. Um, and the, lots of details about the pros and cons of what the police force how they handled things back then. Now this was 21 years ago and that's something 23 years ago, which is something we should make note of. <laughs> um, and that it was, you know, 99, 2000 when this was all ha happening. Um, and so that some of the things that happened and that somebody might listen to this and be like the police did what? Yeah. Cause now that would never happen. Right. Um, so then a police officer told me that if I just went into hiding for two months and disappeared, that they couldn't do anything to me once I turned 18. They informed me that my parents were trying to take me away and put me in a mental institution, which was also not correct. Oh, um, so they were not exactly doing things the way we would expect them to do them now. Yeah. Um, and I think even then, I mean, I was still almost 18 and there wasn't much they could do right. except for bring me back to my parents' house, in which case I just turn around and leave again. And that's what they told my parents. And so it was a whole thing. Right. Um, so yeah, so we got married on my 18th birthday. <laughs> wow. And was he, I mean, was he much older than you or just a couple years? Because, you. I mean, you were underage when you met. So I, it's just, I'm curious about that. Is eight months older than me. Oh. Um, so he was, just, I think he had just turned 18 mm. when we met. So it wasn't really, I mean, there were charges at one point discussed for being with somebody underage. Mm. However because it was I was so close in age to him that they wouldn't even consider prosecuting it right, right. Um, but there there definitely was t 
talk about it at one point. Um, but then they were like, yeah, we, no one's going to buy that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You were literally eight months apart. It wasn't like you were years apart. Years and years. Yeah. 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 And he was still I, in high school. He, mm. he had to redo his senior year. So he was still in high school at the same time I was. So it wasn't like we were the same age. We just. Yeah. Yeah. Slightly exactly. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So when did the abuse really begin and uh, what kind of abuse did you experience? How did it develop over time? So um, when I ran away, I had been pretty sheltered. Um, I grew up in a very, very close-knit family um, that literally to this day, I speak to almost every member of my family every day. Um, and I had never really been away from them or experienced that different of a culture shock. And when I ran away, I ran into his parents' house with him. Mm. Um, and that was a major culture shock. And so I would have breakdowns often. Um, and within like two weeks of living there, he found out that the only way to stop me from going absolutely crazy pants was to hold me down. And when that stopped working, he'd slap me. Mm. And then when that stopped working, it was whatever he could do. Um, slowly over time, it transitioned from getting hit for being in an emotionally distressed state to doing something wrong to no reason at all. Mm. Um, and by the time we got married, I had been hit, punched, kicked, bit, raped multiple times, mm. um, restrained, choked, threatened with cigarettes and knives. Mm. Um, locked upstairs in our pseudo apartment in his parents' house wow. uh, with no way out. Um, so that was just by the time I was 18. Um, when I finally left him years later, he was charged with rape, attempted rape, assault with a deadly weapon, unlawful restraint, stalking, assault, 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 assault. assault. And that's just on me. He also had 150 child porn charges. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. So later on, when things got really bad, um, I attempted to leave a total of seven times. And the last time was number eight, which means slightly above average, but within the average realm of leaving your abuser. Right. And um, every single time I left, things got not better as most people like to think they do when you go back. Um, they actually would get worse for me. Um, and he started using leg cuffs to cuff me to himself at night. So I wouldn't take off while he was sleeping. Um, and then he suddenly realized that he hadn't done anything wrong. So he didn't need to be cuffed. So he would just chain me to the bed every night. Um, and literally would keep the key in my sight, just out of you. Um, and so I couldn't leave basically while he was sleeping. Um, so 
yeah, that was the unlawful restraint. Yeah. Along with all the other stuff. Um, I had cigarette burns. I had knives pressed to my throat multiple times. Wow. So traumatic. So what was the tipping point for you? How did you decide that you needed to leave? How did you even manage leaving when you're handcuffed? Like I said, I had tried to leave multiple times. Yeah. Um, sometimes I'd last a couple hours. Sometimes I'd last a day. One time I lasted three days. Um, and each time I left, I'd reach out to friends in wherever we were. So for the first, we were living together. So the six months before we were married, plus the year we were first married, um, we were which is where I'm from. Um, and then for the second year, we had moved to New York. Um, and so there were friends in both Vermont and New York that I knew through him that I would reach out to and assume that they might be hoping they might be safe people that might just listen to my story and take me in. Um, but then he'd either find me or something would happen and he'd convince me that it would get better that it was the stress of this or that. And I believe them and go back. Um, A lot of it was pride. A majority of it was pride. Um, I was so young and I, I strongly believed that I had made the right choice, even though I knew that what he was doing was wrong. I still knew that I had, I hadn't screwed up in my mind. Um, And I didn't want to go somewhere where somebody would be like, oh, I see you swallowing your pride and coming home. And I I couldn't handle that thought. So I just hung on. I was like, I can do this. I can fix this. Um, So I kept going back. Um, So we had moved to New York so that way I could go to college because he knew that that would be a tipping point for me if he didn't let me go to college. Um, but as things progressed, he stopped letting me go to classes a lot. Um, he had to quit his job for quote unquote, because I wasn't trustworthy enough to be at school without him. So he had to come with me to classes. Um, and so it was my fault that we didn't right. have any money coming in. Um, Naturally. And that he had to sit outside my classrooms all day. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't allowed to do homework because school is where you do schoolwork. You're not supposed to do schoolwork at home. That's right. what you pay them for. So he had basically been just not letting me go to classes at all. And I was like, you know what? This is, that's it. This is my future. This is what I want. I'm done. If he's going to keep me from school, that's it. I'm done. Um, and he used to hide the car keys in his wallet every night from me. Um, and one day I found them just randomly and I remembered where they were. And a week later, I'm going to trust you tonight. I shouldn't, but I'm going to trust you tonight and I'm not going to cuff you to the bed. Prove me wrong. Prove to me that you do not need to be cuffed to the bed. So he fell asleep and about an hour later I got up. And I threw all my clothes in a giant black garbage bag. Um, I threw my 
school books in my bag. And the one other possession I had, which was my flute from growing up playing flute. And I stuck that in between my backpack and my back. And I went to grab the keys to the car and they were gone. And he had moved them. I knew that if I stayed, it was going to get bad. Um, I didn't know how far I could get. We were on a rural route road and it was March and slushy out and freezing. And I wasn't sure if I was going to make it anywhere. If he was just going to wake up and see that I was gone and take off after me in two seconds. But at that point, my options were limited. So I tried. And just like every other time, I walked down the road and I found a payphone, which, yes, they still existed back then. Um, and I used the calling card number that my mom had saved. They had kept it just in case. Um, and I had called a bunch of our friends like I had before. And they all said, yeah, good luck with that. Everybody was done. They were done. I had left three, four times in the last six months. They were done. They were not interested in this drama between us anymore. Whatever was right, whatever was wrong, they didn't care anymore. They said, we really hope you succeed in what you need to do, but we've got stuff going on. Good luck. Um, And so out of desperation, I called my parents' house. Um, We had spoken a couple times. We had gotten on a little bit better terms at that point. And um, my dad answered and uh, he was working from home. He said, all right, get somewhere inside and safe. Call me back. I'm calling your aunt. She lived an hour away from me. And I will call me back and let me know where you are. And she will come meet you. And that was all he said. He didn't say anything else. He didn't, nothing. Um, So I kept walking and some random guy, I We'll always be thankful to this guy. I I don't know who he is. I know nothing about him. Um, but he stopped and asked me if I was okay. He was driving down the road. So that person was like, dude, this is not going to go well for me. I got to keep walking. I don't know this person. Yeah. Um, it's the middle of the night. <laughs> and well, it was actually his first thing in the morning, but yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, got it. Um, yeah, yeah. So we, he didn't let us go to bed until like 6 a.m. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, um, this guy was just driving to work and I was like, actually, I need to get to the gas station that's up ahead. Uh, he's like, all right, I'll give you a lift. And I was like, are you sure? Like I had nothing. I had what I thought was a pocket knife on me. It turned out to be a box cutter that I had taken off a dresser at our house before I left. Um, and that was it. And, uh, he drove me right to the gas station. It was about two miles away and he didn't ask questions. He just wanted to make sure I was safe inside. And he said, are you sure you're able to call who you need to call? Like, is there anybody else I can call for you? Is there anything we can do for you? And I said, no, that's all I need. Thank you. And I appreciate you. He said, all right, I'm going to make sure you get inside safe. And he sat there and waited until I was inside and then he left. And I will never be able to thank this man who literally made it possible for me to get help that day. Um, but uh, my, I called my dad. My aunt arrived and she said, there's two things we're doing. We're going to the police and we're going to the doctor to get you checked out. Um, 
And at that point, I don't know that I had a say in anything. I was so overwhelmed. Um, I don't know that I was there much. I don't think that I had a voice really in any of it. It's just, she said, this is what we were doing. And I just did it. Um, it wasn't until that night, um, about 12 hours later, maybe 15 hours later, I was laying in her guest room, looking up at the stars through a sunlight. And, uh, that was when it suddenly hit me that I was not, I had actually taken that step and I had actually left until that moment. I had don't think I'd realized that it was actually happening. Wow. Yeah. You're in such a fog state. Like you're in such a, I I remember that vividly of just being like, not knowing which way is up really like, and just, it's almost like you're not even present. Like you are making decisions. I don't know. That's how it was for me. I just like, you know, it was kind of just like, uh, okay, yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> you know, it's like, and and I feel like at least for me, I was so numb right, right afterwards was just like, so incredibly numb. I didn't feel like I had any emotions. I actually went to some and stayed with some uh, friends of mine for a week um, that was about two hours away from where we lived before I, I flew um, uh, back to friends and family. And, um, and during that week, um, I mean, they, you know, were asking questions. They, it was actually the only time that I contemplated going back to him because, um, because one, uh, uh, the, the husband of the couple, uh, made some comments that, um, that they, that were very religious and, and they didn't know the full extent of what I was going through. Um, and so, um, anyways, it, I, I was, you know, very much like contemplating going back, but then I talked to my parents about it and they were, um, no, like <laughs> you need to continue, uh, come out here and we'll see, you know, um, type of thing. Uh, you know, once you're safe away and, and have that break, you know, to get out of that fog, I just remember there just being such a fog, such a numbness. So, so you finally like came to about 24 hours later, you said, or maybe 12 hours later. Um, It was like, no. So I ended up at the police station for 12 hours. Um, And while I have, like I said, some qualms with how a lot of things were handled um, through the police, through the entire experience. This is one of those times where they were absolutely amazing. Oh, wonderful. This was, there was never a question about what I said. Nobody thought twice about it. Nobody said, oh, did, you know, are you sure? Or was this just a he said, she said, or are you just trying to get back? None of that. None of that. It was, oh, okay, let's take this seriously. Um, and he was picked up within an hour and a half of me getting to the police station. They had him arrested and interrogated within an hour and a half. Wow. Um, and he was not released again until after his trial. Wow. Which was a year and a half later. 
That's amazing. I, yeah. yeah, I mean, on our, you know, support group on Facebook, um, you know, with the, the thousands of survivors that we walk with in the support group, it's so madding, maddenly, I don't even know if that's a word, <laughs> maddening, you know, maddening, <laughs> yeah, maddening, uh, yeah, there you and, go. and common, um, that, uh, that they are not supported, um, you know, by their, um, local police force or the local police have been, haven't been educated enough to really know how to handle the situation. Um, or, you know, uh, they'll have, um, their, uh, abusive ex-partners, arrested and taken to even prison sometimes, but then they're released and they're not, they're not told. Um, they get informed some, some other way when they're supposed to be for, uh, informed. And it's just, um, it's such a, um, like re-traumatizing, uh, I think, um, for so many. So I'm so thankful that, um, you know, you you were actually supported, um, and, um, and taken very seriously, um, in, in that moment, <laughs> I will clarify yeah. in that moment. Um, it then went a little sideways mm-hmm. through the court system. Um, and I definitely experienced that re-traumatization. Mm-hmm. Um, I, for basically the entire time he was in jail waiting for trial, which was a year and a half. I was about 40 minutes away at college Mm -hmm. and I was about five hours away from my family. Um, So my parents got me one of the first cell phones um, and it was a dark wooded campus. um, Mm -hmm. And I had a dorm room and the security, um, the head of security made sure that my dorm was right next to his office and that there was always a security officer who knew exactly what my situation was and knew where I was. Um, And I had all sorts of systems set up on my phone in case I needed to reach somebody or tell somebody to call 911 for me while I was on the phone with them. So I always walked either with somebody or on my phone I would talk to somebody. Didn't mm-hmm. matter if I was going to see them in two minutes. I was going to talk to them the whole way there. And everybody knew that if I hit these three buttons, that their job was to then just call 911 no matter what mm-hmm. and say exactly where I was and that I was in danger. Because it meant that they didn't inform me that he was released and he was standing in front of me. It never happened. But that was what... I had heard so many stories about and what my biggest fears were. The system did inform me that he was released when he was finally released, which is great about four hours after he was released. Yeah. Um, Which wouldn't have helped me any. Um, The good news is, is that it was because he had already served a year and a half and he was sentenced to one year. Um, And so I was right there with all of those charges. Mm -hmm. He was found not guilty on all charges against me due to lack of evidence. Like I said, this wasn't all everybody did everything great. Um, (laughs) 
I had a um, district attorney, assistant district attorney who was in charge of the case. And she informed me day one that I wasn't going to be believed on the stand because I wasn't in my 40s and I had all my teeth and I was beautiful and intelligent and had my whole life in front of me. Wow. So you're not believed because you have a life? Because (laughs) I was intelligent and young and... That's mind-blowing. And that nobody would believe that really happened to me. Wow. Um on the stand she forgot three charges to bring up while i was sitting on the stand for eight hours um, including the severe ones of a knife and then the way that county worked was public defenders were all defense attorneys were just put on a rotating calendar and everybody just got picked randomly this idiot ended up getting the best public the best defense attorney in the entire county who golfed with the judge gosh wow this guy convinced the courtroom that it didn't happen to me because i didn't cry on the stand oh wow and that because i was cool and calm and collected the entire time that it must have all been a lie wow and they didn't have, they didn't put an expert on the stand explaining about PTSD or about DV or what that looks like or anything. Um, and so he was found not guilty on all charges against me. And he was charged, he was found guilty on 150 child porn charges, but he was sentenced to one year. Wow. And since he'd already served a year and a half, he was released. Um, luckily I was, in the courtroom when that happened. So I knew exactly where he was and that he was released. Um, And so it didn't matter that the system didn't inform me till four hours later, but talk about life got a little bit more complicated. (laughs) Wow. I don't even know where to start with that. It's like, it's honestly mind blowing how these cases go sometimes because it's so clear, you know, to us and to so many that like, I mean, there was clearly enough <laughs> evidence, <laughs> like you are enough evidence, but then, yeah, just like, and, and the fact that you, because you didn't cry, like I, it's maddening because I think that if you would have been emotional, he would have been able to use that as a means to disqualify, you know, like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Oh, she's just an emotional woman. She's making, she's yeah. exaggerating. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because that, yeah. that oftentimes is like, we are, uh, you know, uh, in, in our support group, um, whenever you deal with anything in the court, it's all gotta be factual. It's gotta be emotionless, you know, and, and that's something that we have to, um, explain to survivors because there is so much emotion in it. Um, and, and that's something that, you know, lawyers don't, uh, get and, and don't want to deal with. And, and it can be just such a traumatic process. Wow. So one thing that I want everybody who's ever experienced DV or is trying to deal with the court system or going through this process to hear is, something that was told to me in one of the first support groups I ever went to. They were talking to another survivor 
who had another court hearing coming up. And the moderator said, just remember, court is not where we find closure. Mm. Closure comes within us. We will not find the answers we seek out there. Mm. That has to come from inside. The system is flawed. It will never make up for what you have experienced. Whatever they do will never be good enough. Mm. No matter how great the outcome is, it's not good enough. And you will never feel that release. Your hope and your desire to move past all this and to find new joy needs to come from within you. It does not need to come from what external things happen. Yeah. And that was almost 20 years ago that woman said that. And I'm sure she has no idea the amount of impact it had. But it drastically changed how I viewed all of the court system that I went through. And it made me go, okay, well, that's bull, but I'm going to go live my life and I'm going to find ways to keep myself safe and I'm going to figure this out. Mm. And because I knew that, I mean, my family was beyond upset, but I was like, I can't change this. This isn't going to make it better. Like I I'm not going to get that time back. I'm not going to get my quote unquote innocence back. Right. What was taken from me was taken from me. My safety, my self-worth, my future, my everything was taken from me. And that's not going to come back because he's convicted of a crime. Right. Of what could possibly be proved. That's going to come back from me finding it in myself and proving to him that he was wrong. Mm-hmm. And that he is the one who screwed up, not me. Yeah. And that was for me what brought me to spend the next 20 years working as hard as I have. Yeah. Which me. I'm so excited. I want to talk more about that. So yeah, yeah. How how was that process afterwards? Because I know that you very quickly got connected to your local domestic violence agency. So I would love to know, like, how was that? And then also, how was your process with healing from it all? And, and all of that? Sure. sure. <laughs> so um, I am first, one of the most fortunate humans I can think of for two reasons. <laughs> I mean, many others, but two reasons in particular. One is that my mom is so cool. Um, I feel the he, same way. That's so <laughs> we're like the same person, just you know. I know. I know <laughs> exactly. Um, she decided she didn't know what was happening to me when I was in my mm-hmm. situation. Um, but she decided that she would start volunteering for the local, um, DV agency and just putting the energy out there. And if she put the energy out there, somehow it could get back to me. Somebody could be there for me and save me when I needed it. Um, and so it turned out that when I called my dad and he called my aunt, my mom was actually working on the hotline, the local hotline. And he called her and told her, and they packed her up with every bit of survival gear they had and sent her down to me. So that's a five hour drive that she did with all that stuff, just turned around and left with my siblings at school. My dad said, I got all this, you go. 
Um, and so when I ended up back home, like 24 hours later, back at my parents' house, within two days, she had me connected with the DV agency. She had introduced me to her boss who had introduced me to support group people who had introduced me to other people. And she also, it turned out that it was also the last week in March, which meant that April is sexual violence awareness month and the university's women's center and uh, the domestic violence and sexual violence nonprofits were all working together for a woman's week. Um, and so there was a healing fire and then there was a couple walks and a couple writing workshops. And then at the end of the week was a huge accumulation of a giant speak out, a candlelit speak out, um, on city hall. Mm. Um, and so exactly a week after I left him, I walked up the steps of city hall to about 150 people holding candles and news crews. And I told my story. Um, I couldn't stop myself. I didn't know if I was going to talk or not, but I couldn't stop myself from doing it. I suddenly had this belief that I had to tell everybody so that way people would be aware that this could happen to them, that this could happen to anybody. And that I wasn't just some random statistic and I didn't look the part and I wasn't from that background and I was intelligent and I had all these things and it still happened to me. I still went through that and that nobody is immune. And I needed people to hear me say that. And so a week later I stood there and told the story and I never stopped. Mm -hmm. Um, It has been my passion since that moment. So 21 and a plus years ago, (laughs) um, I have not stopped talking about it. Um, And well, all of that was wonderful. I was still almost 20. Yeah. I had missed my major rebellious stage because I ran away and had to suddenly grow up real fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was in no position to receive the healing that was offered to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I immediately went back to school, which was a mistake. Um, I was given a therapist who I did not talk to. I would sit there and just tell her gibberish, like literally tell her about the weather or this person who talked to me funny or whatever. I like would not talk, would not talk. Um, I, I didn't want to go there. I wasn't emotionally capable of going there. And so I did all the horrible things. I self-sacrificed everything. Um, School, friends, relationships, money, food. It didn't matter. I was going to screw it up in some way. And I did um, for a while. Um, After getting kicked out of school, Mm -hmm. I went back home and worked dead-end jobs and continued going to therapy and finally found one that I was willing to talk to and, like, try to work through stuff. Um, I started going to support groups. And I really started, like, trying to get better and trying to understand what was going on. Um, I a hundred percent sabotaged any relationship I tried after that because I didn't know how to be in one. I would intentionally strike out physically with people in hopes that they would hit me back and I could end it because I didn't know how to have a conversation or an argument with somebody. 
right. I, I drastically just would lie. I would cheat. I would just manipulate. I just didn't know how to function. Mm-hmm. Um, and so years and years of work, and this is something that I want everyone to hear, which is mm-hmm. it doesn't stop. This is now part of who you are. That doesn't mean it's not going to, it's going to be your main focus every day. It doesn't mean that you're going to hurt 24 seven, but there's always going to be that scar. There's always going to be that scab that can be picked and messed with if you don't stop yourself and trying to ignore it or trying to bury it or trying to completely heal it is never going to work. Yeah. Accepting that it's going to exist is your only path forward from my experience. The only way I have gotten to this point where to tell everybody, I have been in my relationship for 14 and a half years. I have been married for almost five to one of the best humans on the face of the planet. He is everything. He is the most caring, compassionate, wonderful human being. And I am so incredibly grateful for him. And he has taught me how to have an actual healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. We have conversations when we're upset. Mm -hmm. We know that at the end of the day, we are going to work it out together. And if either of us crosses a major line, then that's a bigger conversation. Mm -hmm. And we now have a two and a half year old and he's amazing. And, you know, so much has happened since then. And Yet I am still a survivor and that will never change. And I will still talk about this every chance I get. And I will still tell the world my story because A, it still affects me. Sometimes I'll read somebody else's story or hear somebody else's story or see something on the news and I'll instantly be triggered in a way that I hadn't been in years. Mm. Or somebody will walk down the street just a certain way and I'll be like, "Mm mm-hmm. I'm going to turn around and go that way. Yeah. And I won't understand why for a while. And then I'll be like, oh, right. That's right. This is never going to go away. Mm. That was learned. My brain now has that in its memory. Mm. Um, And I will continue to do everything I can to speak out. Yeah. So I can't say I'm healed. I can say that it's been a journey and that, Every single time I look back and think about it, which every year on my anniversary of leaving him, I celebrate my freedom day mm-hmm. and it's my chosen birthday. It's my rebirth. <laughs> oh, it's the I day that. that I chose to start my life again and become me mm-hmm. and choose what pieces of me I wanted to keep and what pieces of me I wanted to get rid of, what pieces of me from my childhood I wanted to bring back and what I was going to say, okay. That was my childhood me. They can stay there. What pieces of being with him I wanted to keep? Because there's some. Yeah. Most of which I wanted to get rid of. But there were things. <laughs> and, and everything since then. And now I get to revisit that every year. And every year go, okay, who do I want to be now? Is this who I want to be? What pieces do I need to work on alleviating and bringing in something new? I love that. It's like your New Year's every year, you know, where you reflect and, and, um, but it's so, it's so much more meaningful, more powerful, you know, because, yeah, I love the, the idea of rebirth. And, um, 
I also loved that when you said uh, what pieces from your childhood you wanted to bring back, because that's such a huge part of healing, I think, from abusive relationships is actually, you know, find, uh, you know, uh, healing that inner child and like, um, you know, allowing yourself to revisit, um, those memories and, and also bring back things that were healing, you know, and, and joyful, um, in your childhood. One thing that, um, I, I didn't realize was, uh, super healing for me was, um, uh, my husband is an artist as well. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm a graphic designer by trade, but, um, anyways, we, he, and I, it is so funny. Our, our stories are like very, very similar, you know, in a lot of ways, but my (laughs) husband is also just the most wonderful, you know, empathetic, a uh, patient, kind human, and has very much uh, taught me and is still teaching me, you know, how to have a healthy relationship, how to have conversations, you know, we sit down, we talk when we um, have, uh, you know, arguments or issues. And so anyways, he he's a total artist. And uh, now when we go on vacations, he brings like a little sketchbook and we'll like sit and draw together. And, um, man, it's just like things like that, you know, that, um, I, he was the one that actually like encouraged me to do it at, at with him and, and, you know, um, just like thinking about my childhood and, and also going to school or going to, um, uh, college was, uh, drawing was such a, um, uh, big, you know, piece of of that so anyways yeah um, I just love I just love your story I love um you know what you've been doing for the last you know uh, (laughs) 20 plus years since escaping and and uh, it's just really really inspiring so uh, thank you thank you so much for coming on I would love to end with um in your opinion what is the most important thing for a survivor to hear I think I just said it (laughs) I think I said, you know, I think what I said was that, you know, it's never over, but it's Mm going to get better. Um, And also when you're in your dark, quiet times in the middle of the night and you're wondering what the hell you just did and why you would blow up your life and walk away from this person that you love and everything feels crazy know that you are loved for who you are by others out there even if it's just by us virtually who understand you innately by the fact that you ended up in this situation but you are loved for who you are exactly as you are you don't need to be somebody else you don't need to curtail to somebody else's desires or physical or emotional abuse. You are you and it's okay if you're really, really, really scared and confused right now. And if you still want to say sorry to that person for whatever it is. I remember my first night, all I wanted to do was just go to him in the jail and tell him I was sorry and say, I'll Mm -hmm. take you back and I'll do whatever I can to get him out of there. And I'd lie and I do everything. It's okay to feel that. It doesn't mean you're less of a survivor. It doesn't mean that you deserve love less or berate yourself for any of it. There are people out there who love you as you are. Mm-hmm. 
you are worthy of being loved <laughs> as you exactly. are. Yeah, I love that. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to get to know you oh, a little no. bit better and know your story and appreciate you coming on today. Oh no. Thank you so much for having me. I love being able to share. <laughs>